life was a tissue of tribulations, says Marie Duran in 1772. She was a, a Huguenot or Huguenot in France, a French Protestant. In 1730, French authorities arrested 19-year-old Marie Duran, shaved her head, and imprisoned her without trial for her Protestant faith in a medieval fortress, the Tour de Constance, on the Mediterranean Sea. She was to be locked up there until she agreed to abjure her Protestant faith and convert to Roman Catholicism, or until she died. Duran refused to convert and remained in her dungeon for 38 years. She was finally released in 1768 at the age of 57, when public opinion turned against the oppression of Protestants and the Tour de Constance was closed. She died in her home eight years later. Imagine, like Marie, being locked in a dark dungeon. Imagine maybe one night you're arrested, the authorities come, and you don't know why, you don't know what the charges are, you don't know how long you'll be in jail, <coughs> but they throw you in a dark dungeon. Let's say you're in that situation. What would be something that would keep you from giving up? What would be something that would keep you from giving up? What would be maybe a sign of a token you want if you were down there? George. Yeah, that's really good. Your own conscience, a clear conscience might keep you from giving up. John. Knowing that God's purpose behind this is for good. Yeah, that might be the best answer. Those two answers together. Are wonderful. Janae. I mean, I was thinking more of physical things like if they allowed to have you one, if they allowed you to have one, then like a Bible, like mm -hmm. not only to pass the time, but as a reminder of God's promises and that you're redeemed. Yeah. You'd probably be looking for anything to help you get through that dark situation. Although if you were a Huguenot, then uh, they probably wouldn't let you have a Bible. Yeah, the Catholic Church probably wouldn't let you have a Bible. Yeah. But maybe, I don't know. Daniel, did you have something? Yeah. Uh, I was going to say the Bible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, I was Well, where are we in the Bible? Where? Did, what book did we study last? You guys remember? Judges. Judges. How did Judges leave off? On a hopeful note or a not-so-hopeful note? Not so hopeful now. There was no resolution to Judges. Judges ends, and Israel is basically in this dark dungeon of this downward spiral of sin. It's just been getting worse and worse, and there's no resolution. Uh, there's no king, no kingdom to lead and guide the people of Israel, and everyone's doing what was right in their own eyes, Judges ends by saying. And what was right in their own eyes was not good. It was sin. So Judges leaves us in a dark jail cell. If you're reading along and you're putting yourself in the shoes of, the, of Israel, uh, you're sitting there wondering if God's left his people. Just sitting there without any hope. 
in this prison they've made for themselves? Does God still care about his people? And then we come to the next book, Ruth. Ruth is like a ray of sunshine, just a small sliver of sunshine, a sliver of hope in a dark prison cell. The book of Ruth gives us hope. It reminds us of God's love for his people, even disobedient people. And at this point in the story, this is just what the people of Israel need. The story we're looking at tracing from Genesis all the way through to Revelation. God's people need to be reminded of who God is and that he still cares for his people. He hasn't forgotten them. He's not going to leave them in that cycle. He's going to redeem them. Ruth, ultimately, is a story about two women's faith and God's faithfulness. Ruth's a story about two women's faith and God's faithfulness. It's a story about what it looks like to believe. That's what we learn from the women. And who God is and why he's worthy of believing in. So let's open to Ruth. Joshua judges Ruth. It's a very short book. We could have read the whole thing tonight. If you want, go home and read the whole thing this evening, tomorrow morning. It won't take but ten minutes. So turn with me to Ruth chapter 1. And we're going to read 1 through 17. It sets up the whole story. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons, the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of the wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there, but Elimelech the husband of Naomi died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died. So the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was, with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with me, with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. And she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb, that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. I should say, I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night, and should bear sons. Would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me, to me, for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. But Ruth clung to her. And she said, Naomi says, 
See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her God. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. When you die, where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So let's just summarize what we just read there. What's going on? How does it start? Where are we in the history of Israel? Okay, so this sets us during some time in that last book that we just studied. Who are, who are the main characters? George? Ruth and Naomi. Mm -hmm. And a couple of the men in their lives. Yeah. And what do uh, Naomi and her husband and her sons do? They moved. To Moab. They leave Judah. They leave the promised land and go to Moab. Uh, does Moab sound like a good place to go or a bad place to go? George. Bad place. It's a bad place to go. Maybe we talked it? about it when we were talking about Numbers uh, or Exodus. Moab are enemies of Israel. Where is it? Ooh. I believe it's towards like the southeast. Maybe. Sounds good. <laughs> you can go, the last book in the Bible after Revelation is maps. Sometimes there are maps back there. That might help. Yeah. So it's a neighboring country, but it's an enemy country of Israel. And why do they go there? Janine, you said they moved. Why do they move? They just come up and leave. Was there like famine? Yeah, there was a famine. So they're hungry, they're on the brink of starvation maybe, and they go. What happens when they're in Moab? Good things, all good things, or bad things? Uh, what happens, Daniel? All, all the men die. All the men die. Does this leave a woman in the ancient Near East in a good situation or a bad situation? probably a pretty bad situation for Naomi. She's in a foreign country, the enemies of God's people, and now her husband's dead. She's lost everything. She's in so much despair that she starts kind of talking nonsense. She's encouraging her daughters-in-law to just leave it. Just go back to your own gods. Naomi knows these are false gods. Naomi knows this isn't really a good thing to tell them. But she does it anyway. I wonder if you've ever been there in that situation. You're so distraught. You're so upset. Maybe you're throwing a hissy fit. Maybe you have a legitimate reason to be upset. You're just you're absolute in just distress. And you just start talking nonsense. Just go away from me. People try to comfort you, trying to help you. You just tell them to get away from me. You don't really know what you're saying. I think that's probably where Naomi is. What do her two daughter-in-laws do? George, what does Orpah 
She says, okay. She tries not to. Naomi's insistent. She leaves. What does Ruth do? George. Ruth stays with her. Ruth stays. She clings to Naomi. She has this wonderful profession of what I believe to be faith. She says, your God will now be my God. Your people will be my people. Where you die, I will die. Their decision to go to Moab was a foolish and maybe even a sinful decision. The reason famine had come on the land was that Israel was breaking the covenant that they had made with God, that God had made with them. God was being faithful to his promise. If you are unfaithful, if you don't keep my law, then famine will come upon the land. What Naomi and Elimelech and their sons should have done was stay right where they are and repent and call everyone around them to repent, to turn from their sin. Instead, they up and leave. Through their hunger, they should have turned from evil and called their neighbors to turn from evil. But instead, they flee. They disregard. They leave the presence of God, God's promised <coughs> land to God's promised people. I wonder if you feel that in some ways you've ever walked away from God. Maybe you feel like you've walked away from God by wandering into sin. <coughs> if you're gladly going on sinning, then there's no way you can think that you're walking with God and gladly walking in sin at the same time. There's no longer a promised land where we can physically go to be away from God's presence. What we can do is indulge in sin and gladly disregard what God's called us to live by as humans. You can't be messing around with sin and be claiming to be walking with God. So maybe you've felt like you've walked away from God in that way. Maybe you're walking away with, from God right now by disagreeing with the true things your parents have told you about God. There's not a holy land anymore but there is still a holy people, a covenant people. And that's the church. God's covenant isn't with Israel anymore. God's covenant <coughs> is with his people, the church, who he's adopted not by blood, not by uh, physical offspring, but by faith. Many of your parents are members here at Millwood. And so they can be considered covenant people. Walking away from their faith, from the faith of your parents, from the truths that they tell you, and the God that they believe in, is just like a Jew walking out of the Holy Land. Yes, sir? What if, like, one of your parents, like, doesn't say, like, the s stuff that is exactly right in the Bible, and they're just, they're saying the stuff that they think is right, but it isn't? Uh... What if they're saying things that are inconsistent with the Bible? Yeah. Well, then, our responsibility is to still love them, to still uh, honor them, even. That's a command, a clear commandment from God. But just like the apostles in Acts say, uh, we must obey God rather than men. So our obedience, first and foremost, is always to God. Uh, what I'm saying here isn't that if our parents are teaching us something wrong, we just blindly follow our parents. 
What I'm not saying is that if our parents are teaching us something wrong, uh, we leave our parents' house. Uh, what I'm saying is, insofar as your parents are teaching what is consistent with the Bible, we ought to be following them. We actually have to be following them. There's no salvation outside of what God's offered us in Christ. And if they're following Christ, if they're teaching us to do the same, then it's not only the smart thing, it's not only the obedient thing, it's the only thing we can do is follow them. That's a really good question, sinners. I think it's helpful for a lot of us. There's one other way we might be walking away from God. We're tempted to walk away from God. And that's when you have to deal with the consequences of your sin. It's when you have to deal with the consequences of your sin. Naomi and her family are dealing with the consequences of the nation's sin. And when we're faced with consequences, what we often want to do is try and lie, cover it up, do run away, do anything we can to avoid dealing with the consequences of sin. Instead, often what we have to do is own up to it and repent. Own up to it and repent. But that's not what Naomi and her family do. do. Uh, they've dug themselves in this hole and they just keep digging deeper. They're now in, the, in this land of Moab with no men to help them. But by God's kindness, what does she do? George. Um, she goes back. To yeah. She turns around. She repents. In her sorrow, Naomi tells her daughter-in-law's daughters-in-law to leave. Uh, but we see the faith of Ruth. She clings to her, and together they go back to the promised land. They, Ruth is leaving everything she knew. Naomi's going back. Ruth is a Moabite. She has always lived in Moab. She's always worshipped the gods of her family, which are false gods and idols. She's giving up what could have been just a fine life. She was probably a young woman. She could have started afresh in Moab. Instead, she's choosing poverty with her mother-in-law and to go back to Israel to the true and living God. They return. In doing this, Ruth especially, but Ruth and Naomi are teaching us what true saving faith looks like. What true saving faith looks like. So we've already said it doesn't look like simply being born into a Christian family. No one's saved because of their DNA. It doesn't simply look like believing that, this, that the Bible, even, is true. It's not just knowing facts and agreeing with them. Just knowing facts and agreeing with them is not what saving faith looks like. It's not just knowing that Jesus died on the cross for sinners and rose again three days later. Plenty of people agree that that happened, but aren't saved. I can believe that Alexander the Great conquered most of the known world. I can agree with that historical fact. I can agree that Joe Biden's the president of the country. I can believe and agree that two plus two equals four. These are facts that I agree with. But that's very different from saving faith. Faith in God and in Jesus Christ, his son, isn't just believing in the same way you believe those other facts. Well, what is it? This book of Ruth teaches us a couple of things that are markers of true saving faith. True saving faith, first we see, 
is a repentant faith. The, the first chapter here keeps using the word return. That's actually the word that is often translated in the Old Testament as repent. Ruth and Naomi return, they repent. Repentance and faith go hand in hand. In fact, repentance is actually how we are, other people are able to see faith. Uh, if someone could turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 for us, if someone could turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and read 1 Thessalonians 1 verses 9 and 10. First one there, just start reading. For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. A few verses earlier, Paul had said that they were chosen by God. Paul knows that they are chosen by God. How does he know this? Because it's evidently reported that they have turned from idols to serve the true God. Their repentance... They're turning from living one way, from idolatry, and to the living God is the evidence of their saving faith. For us, that probably doesn't look like worshiping statues and turning away from that. What are maybe one or two ways that we might be able to see repentance in someone today? Sin. Can anyone think of it another way? Sienna? Um, I kind of, the question left my mind. What was the question? A way we might be able to see someone repent today. We're probably not turning from worshiping little statues. What's another evidence of someone's repentance? Um, I don't know, because... One way you could see it is that, like, if you've known someone for a long time, and at one point they seem like a terrible person, but then at another point later on in life you start to notice that they're more, they're kinder, but that doesn't always mean that they repented, but they're also, they've changed a lot more, and they're forgiving, and, like, when I've learned from friends of mine, mm -hmm. like, the, that, the, one of the reasons I'm, like, um, I'm able to stop myself from doing stuff is because um, I remember they would tell me like you shouldn't do that like I, I don't know I, I don't know exactly how to say it but it's it can change it, it's I don't know you can see a change in a person yeah we would expect not, someone yeah. who's saying that they believe in Jesus that I'm yeah. repenting to look differently if their life was bearing bad fruit before they're bringing good fruit now. Fruits, like you mentioned, being forgiving, being kind. You can go to Galatians and see the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, etc. So, not living one way, living a new way now. So, a true saving faith is a repenting faith, a repentant faith. A true saving faith also loves God and his people. As Ruth clings to Naomi, those who believe cling to God no matter the circumstances and cling to God's people also no matter the circumstances. And that's the church throughout their whole lives. 
Because you can't walk away from the church and say that you're a Christian at the same time. You can't be walking with God. You're not walking with God's people. Remember when we studied 1 John? That was one of the marks John gave us of true saving faith was fellowship with other believers. A true saving faith loves God and his people, and a true saving faith trusts. We've already talked about this a little bit. A true saving faith is a faith that is trusting, not just mentally agreeing with something. Ruth and Naomi, to say that they have faith, isn't to say that they're confident in their own abilities to provide for themselves and they're confident things are going to work out. Instead, they're casting themselves wholly, trustingly upon God, the God of Israel, the only true and living God, believing that he is good and will do good to them. So their faith is more than just agreeing with facts. Orpah, the other daughter-in-law, might agree that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob exists. But Ruth trusts him. Faith isn't just saying, I believe that chair will hold me up. Faith is sitting down in the chair. <clears throat> For Ruth, that looks like turning from the gods of Moab to Yahweh, the God of Israel. For us, if we have more revelation... That looks like turning from our sin and trusting in Christ. It's not returning to a holy land. It's returning to the holy God who's revealed himself clearly now in Christ. Faith in Christ is more than just believing that he exists. It's more than just believing that he's the son of God. It's more than just agreeing with the facts that he died and three days later rose. Faith is putting your trust in him. Faith is putting your hope in him. It's saying I'm not trusting in my own goodness anymore. I don't think I'm worthy to stand before God. It's saying I need Christ to pay for my sins and give me his righteousness and his goodness. Saving faith, the kind that Ruth is showing us here, turns away from the idol of yourself and to God. So we've seen the women uh, teach us what faith is. We also see God's faithfulness throughout the story of Ruth. It's in Christ, ultimately, that we see God's faithfulness to his word, faithfulness to his character, to who he is. And he shows in Christ that he's worth putting our trust in. But over a thousand years before Christ, we see that very same God, worthy of the same trust, in Ruth. God is faithful. He's trustworthy. He's worth believing in. Look at the last verse of chapter 1 in Ruth. Look at the very last verse in chapter 1. So Naomi returned, Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem. It's the beginning of barley harvest. The famine is over. God's been faithful to his people. He hasn't forgotten about them. They haven't all died of starvation. He hasn't forsaken his people. And the rest of the book, that we're not going to go through and read the whole thing, but the rest of the book tells about God's kindness to Naomi and Ruth in their meeting a man named Boaz. God's kindness comes to them through this man named Boaz, who redeems them. He's saying, I will glory in my Redeemer. We see throughout this book, 
redemption to the king, Boaz redeems him. What does it mean to redeem? To redeem is to restore, to bring back, to rescue, and usually it's in a financial situation. So it comes at a cost. To redeem is to restore, and it usually comes at a cost. Remember, Naomi and her family had been ruined. They'd lost everything. When they left, they probably lost all their inheritance, all the land that they uh, that was promised to their family. So they're coming back with nothing, and they need help. And God, in his kindness and his faithfulness, provides help in the form of basically what is ancient Israel welfare. Uh, they were allowed to go through farmers' fields and pick anything that was left over. And so that that's what Ruth goes to do. So farmers would go, and the workers would uh, go and pick everything in the field, but they wouldn't pick everything perfectly. And so people were allowed to come on other people's property and glean and pick what was left over. It's how God, in his law, allowed for that and provided for the poor that would be in the land of Israel. So we see God's kindness and caring for the poor and needy just in that law alone. But Ruth's taking advantage of this, and it just so happens the field she goes to is a relative of Naomi. It's Boaz. It's his field. I think it was an accident that they stumbled on Boaz's field. Caden, do you think it was an accident that they stumbled on Boaz's field? Maybe? Danny? Yeah. In a sense, it might have been an accident. Uh, but it's also pretty evident that this is God's providence working. This is God sovereignly controlling this situation to bring about his ends. And so ultimately, no, it's no accident that they come to Boaz's field. Another law God had made to take care of poor people tells near relatives to redeem or restore a fallen family, even if it costs them a lot of money. And so Boaz, the man whose field they go to, is willing to do just that. He's willing to redeem them. He's willing to buy back uh, Elimelech's land and property and marry Ruth so that their family line will go on, so that a, another man's family line will go on through Naomi and Ruth. Look at verse uh, chapter 2, verse 20. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. This is before that happens. She knows it's one of her redeemers. Uh, flip again to chapter 3, verses 9 and following. Uh, skip down to 12. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. If there's a redeemer near in the night, remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until morning. And ultimately we see that this other guy isn't willing to redeem her. Boaz is, and so he redeems Naomi and Ruth. How does this show us God's faithfulness? How does... Ruth, this book of Ruth, teach us about what does it teach us about God and his faithfulness. First, it shows us that the Lord 
is faithful to himself. First and foremost, God is faithful to himself. When we say God's faithful, he's been faithful to Naomi and Ruth, we don't mean he's standing there kind of like cheering them on. He's a faithful encourager and a faithful fan of theirs, saying, I believe in you. He's faithful to himself. He's true to his word. He's true to his character. You see how he takes care of the poor. He takes care of the needy in his law, and he takes care of them providentially in bringing them to this Redeemer. He's not ever going to stop being who he says he is, a God of mercy and of love. If God is faithful, if he's true to himself, if he's true to his word, then he's worthy of your trust. In this dark and changing world that's full of inconsistency, full of unreliable people like you, unreliable people like me, who change, who fail, God's faithfulness means that he is worthy of your trust. So God is faithful to himself. God's faithful to these women. Because God's faithful to himself, it's natural that he's faithful to these women. He's faithful to them by his unchanging care of them, his love for them. He rescues them from hunger and from poverty, through providence and the kindness of Boaz. We should expect the God who says he loves his people, to describe himself as merciful, to not abandon these women. God is a rewarder of those who seek him, Hebrews says. And Hebrews also says that the Lord will never leave you nor forsake you. The women, by their faith, aren't strong-arming God and forcing him to be faithful. He's freely being faithful and kind and loving to them. We should expect those who seek after God to find him and be rewarded by him. God's faithful to himself, to these women. He's faithful to his people. It's through these women... God is faithful to his covenant people, Israel. He hasn't left them in the dark. He hasn't left them off to the, to the judges to uh, kind of help them out sometimes, but they just keep this downward spiral. Uh, God's not going to abandon his people. It's through these women that the answer to the problem at the end of Judges, there was no king in Israel, is Saul. Look at the end of this book here in Ruth. Just look at verse 17 in chapter 4. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Nahum. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. So it turns out, this is the big twist ending at the end of the book, is that this Moabite woman is actually the great-grandmother of King David who would be the righteous king, who saves his people Israel, who leads them rightly into right worship, who establishes them as a great kingdom. God blesses his people through King David. But to get there, he blessed them through Boaz and Naomi and Ruth. And that's how he still blesses his people, through other people. That's why there are all those one another commandments in the New Testament. You look through the New Testament, many commandments say to do that commandment to one another, love one another, encourage one another, etc. God's faithfulness to people usually comes through other people. So think now, just on your own, think of one or two ways that God's been faithful to you and the kindness 
of someone else in your life. It might have been a parent who's been faithful to love you even when it didn't benefit them at all. Maybe you've been blessed by a friend who's encouraged you or a sibling who's forgiven you. These are examples of New Testament commandments being fulfilled through other people. God being faithful to us through others. And that even means your good works, your loving others, is how God will often love his people. Finally, God is faithful to himself, to these women, to his covenant people Israel. He's faithful to his promise to bring about a redeemer. The Bible is one story about God's glory by redeeming a people in Christ. That's the theme that we're looking through the whole Bible and seeing. It's one story about God's glory by redeeming people in Christ. And in Ruth, God's doing two wonderful things in that one story. First, he's providing a line from uh, Abraham, we read about that promise, to David, we see here, ultimately to Jesus. And this story about Boaz, Boaz redeeming Ruth and Naomi, we see God physically preserving the line that would bring about Christ, the Savior, the Redeemer. And that's the other wonderful thing he does. So one, he's preserving the line of David, the line that will lead to Christ. And the second wonderful thing he does is he's teaching us about that Redeemer, Jesus. Just like Boaz redeems Naomi and Ruth, these two women who are lowly, who aren't worthy of this redemption, just like that, Christ redeems his people, showing infinitely more kindness and paying an infinitely greater cost than Boaz paid. Ruth shows us that God doesn't leave these poor women to care for themselves. He sends them help. He brings them home. He restores them. Like Ruth, we need a redeemer. Whether you've walked away from God, whether you've walked away from his people, whether you've wandered into sin, whether you feel poor, lonely, like an outcast, bullied at school, maybe you are the bully at school, maybe you feel like a second-class citizen, a woman in the ancient Near East, someone who's oppressed, God offers you hope of redemption in Christ. It's those very people that are most fit to receive God's redeeming, loving grace. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification, and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The redemption in Ruth's story points us to the greater redemption in Jesus. Ruth and Naomi are offered redemption from, to, in order to recover land, to have children, to be lifted out of poverty. But what Jesus offers is redemption out of spiritual poverty. Do you see yourself tonight, sitting here, as poor and needy spiritually? 
You see yourself as a sinful lawbreaker, as hopeless in yourself. If you do, you're a prime candidate for finding redemption in Christ. Christ has accomplished redemption for his people, and he's done it at great cost. Far greater than Boaz, far greater than the price of some women, at the cost of his own blood. So Ruth is a book about redemption. It holds out the hope of redemption to Israel when they were in a very dark place. It holds out the hope of redemption to anyone who finds themselves in a dark place. It's shining that small sliver of light in a dark prison cell. Ruth shows us that there's hope in our Redeemer, in Christ, who John says is the light of the world, who shows up maybe only in a sliver in this story. It might be kind of hard to see. But he's now dawned on the whole land. The son of righteousness has risen. Jesus has come. So that means there's hope for us today. If we, like Ruth, turn around and walk trustingly towards him in faith. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you for your wisdom in ordering history, in leading Israel, even through rebellion and sin, in caring for them, in being patient with them, in order to bring about a Redeemer for us, Christ. Lord, we pray that tonight we would seriously consider that offer you've made to us of finding redemption in him. Help us to see who he is, who you are in him, and the grace that's offered to us. Help us to do that for one another now. In Jesus' name, amen.